Ezra chapter 2, Black Pew Bible, page 374. We'll see if I get all the way through it, or maybe I'll just give up halfway. Starting at verse 1, now these are the people from the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah and Sariah and Reliah and Mordecai and Bilshan and Mizpar and Bigvi and Rehum and Bana. <clears throat> the list of the men of the people of Israel. The descendants of Parash, 2,172. Of Shephthiah, 372. Of Ara, of Pahach Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. Of Elam, 1,254. Of Zatu, 945. Of Zakai, 760. Of Bani, 642. Of Bibai, 623. And Azgad, 1,222. Of Adonakam, 666. And Bigvi, 2,056. Of Adin, 454. Of Atter, through Hezekiah. Hezekiah is easy. I like Hezekiah. 98. Of Bezai, 323. Of Jor, 112 of Hashum, 223 of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethlehem. I like Bethlehem too, I can say that. Uh, Netophah, 56. Anathoth, 128 of Asmaveth, uh, 42. Of Kiriath Jerim, of Kafira and Biroth, 743. Of Ramah and Giba, 621. Of Mikmash, 122. Of Bethel and Ai, 223. Of Nebo, 52. Of Magbish, 156. And of the other Elam. 1,254 of Harim, 320 of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725 of Jericho, 345 and of Sinah, 3,630. And then there are priests. The priests, the descendants of Jediah through the family of Jeshua, 973 of Immer, 1,052 of Pashur, 1,247 of Harim, 1,017. This is riveting. I know it is. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the line of Hodaviah, 74, the musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 128, the gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom and Atar and Talmud and Akab and Hatita and Shobai, 139. We're going to edit this out of the podcast. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha and Hasufa and Tabaoth and Keroth and Sahaya and Padon and Lebanah and Hagabah and Akub and Hagab and Shalmai and Hanan and Gedel and Gahar and Reiah. And Rezin and Nakoda and Gazam and Uza and Pasia and Besai and Azna and Munim, no, Munim and Sefusim and Bakbuk and Hakufa and Harhur, Har, is that a B or an H? My eyes are blurring. Barkah, Sisera, Tema, Naziah and Hatifa. But wait, that's not all. The descendants of the servants of Solomon are here too. The descendants of Sotai and Hasophereth and Peruda and Jala and Darkon and Giddel and Shephatiah and Mahatil and Pokereth Hazabayim and Ami. The descendants of the servant, the temple servants and descendants of the servants of Solomon. There were 392 of those. And the following came up from the towns of Tel Malah, Tel Harsha and Kerub, Adon and Emer. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel the descendants of Deliah and Tobiah and Nakoda, 652. And from among the priests themselves, the priests, the descendants of Hobiah and Hakoz and Barzillai, a, a man who'd married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. 
The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 male and female slaves and they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels and 6,720 donkeys. This is the word of the Lord. I was convinced I was going to cut about halfway through and just bail on that whole thing. So where are we in the story? Chapter 1 of Ezra, there was some serious action going on. We were just getting going and God was on the move, right? The buzz around town. There were people in captivity, right? We know that the Babylon had swept through and destroyed Jerusalem and left no two stones standing one upon the other. The people of God were carried off in exile off to Babylon in an attempt to decimate their culture, their identity, and their, their walk with their Lord. And they remained in exile for like 70 years. An entire generation of people separated from their land and from their temple and from their God. Or so they thought. Because after these 70 years, God allowed the Persians, to sweep through the entire area, take out the Babylonians. And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued a decree that said the people of God can go home. After 70 years, he said, you can go home and rebuild your temple and begin worshiping again. And while you're worshiping, put in a good word for me, the king. And so where we pick up the story... This is a story, the book of Ezra is a story of renewal, and not just the feeling of renewal, not just renewal as mood enhancement, but real renewal because the people get to rebuild their life with the God who renews. So chapter 1 is filled with action. Chapter 1 sees God on the move as He's both the agent and the focus of all of this renewal. He orchestrates this return movement for His people. Chapter 1 is filled with anticipation. God's people are going home and we think, I can't wait to get to chapter 2. What's the next exciting thing that's going to happen? A list of names. A census. About as exciting as when the teacher takes attendance in class. And at first glance, Some of us may be tempted to skip over this chapter as we're reading through. Some of us might include me. I was even tempted to skip through it even as I read it to you because this list is boring. Or is it? Right, This is God's Word, and so I'm going to trust that in every chapter of God's Word, there is truth that we need to grab hold of. Truth that we need to internalize. There's something that's got to be in here about God's character and nature. The question is, what is it? It could be boring. Or perhaps. Or perhaps it's actually amazing. Because it teaches us, among many things, at least two truths. And one of them is beautiful, and the other one is hard. This is a text that's going to teach us two things about our God. One of them is amazing and the other one is challenging. And it's this. We are going to see that God welcomes us by name. But He invites us on His terms. 
God welcomes us by name, but invites us on His terms. Let's start with the fun part. Let's start with the God welcoming us by name part of this, because this is beautiful. Right away, this idea that this is just a what is it a list of? It's a list of names. This list, even just the fact that it's a list of names, reveals that God is gracious and welcoming and His love is unstoppable. That He is a God of welcome who does name after name, family after family. It's not just a people group in general that God welcomes to Himself. But when He brings the people back, He brings them back person by person, family by family, city by city, and He knows each person by name. That our God is a God who is personal. That our God is a God who knows your name. That Dale Carnegie who said, a person's name to him or her is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. When someone calls you by name, you, you feel known. Starbucks is making a killing by asking people what's your name so they can write it on the cup and when your coffee's ready, they call you by name and you're like, oh, I'm so known here. It's either that or by getting people addicted to pumpkin spice. When God calls your name, you are known. And this isn't just here in this list. This is, this is throughout Scripture, right? Even Jesus talks about the personal attention we get from God. There's a great text in, in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is teaching. And He says, look, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God welcomes us by name. The hairs on your head are numbered? God knows us that well? And He still welcomes us? God welcomes us by name. And here in Ezra 2, we have a list of families, a list of households, a list of names. And before we go any further, we just need to stop and say that in of itself is beautiful. That that's our God who knows us by name. But it does raise the question, who God welcomes us by name, but who exactly is us? And I want to take us even deeper into the text here to point out a really beautiful example because God is even better than just a God who knows us by name. It's more than just that God uses specific names in this text. We get this whole list of those who are included in this return from exile. And the list goes family by family at first, and then it goes city by city for others, and then it gets to those who are defined by their service at the temple, whether it's the priests and the Levites or the temple servants and then the servants of Solomon. But it's this last category I just want to draw your attention to as an example, because this list being a census of those who are us, those who belong to the people of God. And here's the amazing part. Many of the names here, verses 43 through 58... Many of these names are of non-Israelite origin. Think that through for a minute. Many of these names reflect ethnic histories 
of people who are outside the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. For example, uh, Ziha, that is Egyptian or Aramaic. Rezin, I have to say all these names again. Syrian or Aramaic. Bizai, that's uh, Babylonian. That's the enemy. Munim and Nephesim are Arabian, and Barkos is of Edomite origin, and that means son of Kos, which is an Edomite god. Wait, wait, so if God is welcoming us by name, who exactly is us? Well, that includes the foreigner, and that includes the outsider, and that includes the people you'd least expect to be included among the people of God. They're not just included, they too are mentioned by name as belonging to God. This is the kind of God we serve. A God who welcomes the foreigner and the outsider and the unexpected people. So what we're saying here is that God is actually a God of welcome and we see it over and over again. You might say to yourself, Tim, you're reading a little much into this. It's just a list of names. It is just a list of names. And if this was the only place I was trying to build that case from, you'd be right to be very critical of me and hurt my feelings. But Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham and says, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. God's scope has never been just me and mine. God's scope has been all nations on earth. Leviticus 19, by the time the law is being laid out, He actually gives instructions to His people saying, and when the foreigner comes among you, You're going to love that foreigner like you loved yourself and you're going to treat them like an insider because you too, God says, were once foreigners in Egypt. And by the time Isaiah's on the scene talking about the return from exile, and he's, you know, it could just be that God would take his, his chosen people and return them to what they once were. But in Isaiah 49 verse 6, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, it's too small a thing just to restore the tribes of Jacob. I want to reach the Gentiles that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth, God says. Jesus in John 3, for God so loved just His own people. Wrong. For God so loved the world. And the the closing image of the Bible sees us in Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see this portrait of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Am I reading too much into the list? No, because this is what the whole Bible says. God has always welcomed everyone to His table. And His end game is to welcome everyone to His table. There is no place where God's love cannot reach. There is no people group that God's love cannot reach into. This is who God is. God welcomes people. And He welcomes them by name. And I'd really like to stop there. Because that's the delicious part. But I can't stop there. Because there is a tension in this text as well. There's a second insight that I want to draw your attention to. And it needs to come right alongside this first insight. Because there's an edge to the text. Even as I read it this morning. Did you catch it? This text isn't just about welcome. This list also balances our view of God. 
For He invites us on His terms. He is a God of gracious and extravagant welcome. But He also welcomes us in on His own terms. I don't know if you noticed that that part of the passage, but if you look down to verses 59 through 63, the following came up from the towns of Telmalah and Telharsha and Karub and Adon and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. They lacked paperwork. And so the descendants from a couple of these families, like 652 of them, and even from among the priestly class, right? The descendants of Hobiah and Hekaz and Barzillai. These people... They searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Excluded from leadership. Wait, wait. Why are they being excluded? Oh, because God has terms for our relationship with Him. These are a number of families, they returned with the exiles, but they couldn't demonstrate through the records that they were descended from Israel. And this is all based back on Exodus 28 and 29, when God was constituting His people. And He said to Aaron, Moses' brother, and He said, you will be My priest. In fact, your sons will, in fact, all of your descendants will become My priests. And we're going to have you as a class of people You're going to be holy and set apart to me. You're going to be set apart from the rest of the people and only your descendants will be priests. And he's saying, this is my law. This is my ordinance. These are my statutes. These are my commandments that you should be set apart as holy. Because I want to teach you through this, God says, that I am holy. And that I am set apart. And that my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts are higher than yours. And it teaches you that I am holy and set apart. And it teaches you that you don't approach me casually. It teaches you that I, says the Lord, am decidedly other and higher and more. These are my terms. Wait, what happened to radical welcome? There's suddenly terms to this relationship. Turns out, if you want to be in a relationship with God, You have to approach that relationship His way. We need to live our lives the way He is calling us to live. We are welcome by name, but we need to recognize we're being invited on His terms. And I feel like this is the hard edge in the text. The sharp edges. It is a relationship. But the reality is relationships have terms to them. How many of you have given a gift to a friend or a spouse that was actually a gift you wanted and it was really just a gift for you. What if, let's just be hypothetical here for a moment, for Joanna's birthday, a day set apart to honor her and to celebrate her, I gave her a new benchtop drill press for my workshop. I'll make some good stuff for you with it, honey. Turns out that gift would not be about her. I'm just using her to get what I want. How often do we approach God the same way? Just using God to get what we want. We want our own lives, our own priorities. This is stuff that we want. So God, could you just bless my stuff? Could you just bless me as I live my life? I don't actually want to change. I don't want to actually have to pay attention to you or think about what would make you happy or what might please you or what... I don't have to even know you that well. I just want you to bless me along the way. 
If you can just affirm who I already am and let me be who I want to be, that would be swell. But relationships have terms. There are terms to my relationship with my wife. Turns out my job as a husband is to know her and to honor her and serve her, to put her needs before my own, to sacrifice so that she will thrive and that one day I can present her holy and blameless before the Lord. She is not there to affirm my existence, to affirm the life I want to live. I am learning slowly in fits and spurts what it means to die to myself in order to honor her. And that's called a relationship. It's a relationship that has terms. Here are the terms. I put her first. And here's what it comes down to in Ezra. The second insight in this text is a simple list. Really? Yes, it's just a list. But this list is about a renewed relationship, but it's a relationship with God. And if you want to know what this relationship with God is like, the first thing you read to realize is this is not a relationship between equals. This is not a relationship between equals. This is a relationship with God we're talking about here. And God sets the terms for any relationship with Himself. And those terms are these. Put Him first. Because one party in this relationship is God, the Maker of heaven and earth, about whom the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One party in this relationship is perfect and righteous, dwelling in unapproachable light. One party in this relationship is good and pure and loving and even defines those terms for the entire universe. One party in this relationship is the sovereign God over all whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that party is not you and me. That's the party that we are to put first in everything in our life. We are to put God first. And that is offensive today. A God who sets terms for a relationship with Him. A God who establishes parameters for our benefit and for His glory. What do you mean there are boundaries and limits in life? There's a pattern for how we should live and how we should love Him. How dare He exercise authority over us? Just who does He think He is? Well, He thinks He's God and He's right. Let's call this attribute of God let's put a name on it let's call it holiness he is set apart he is above us he is righteous perfection he and he is the judge of all God is holy and we forget this side of his character far too easily we have lost our fear of the Lord we treat God casually like he's just one of us right so that his ideas are subject to our discussion, our approval or endorsement, or our withholding of endorsement. God, we read his laws and we think, oh, he's just like one of us. So those laws are up for debate or maybe for reinterpretation or some revision. But when God establishes clear terms for a relationship with himself, terms we may or may not be able to explain, terms we might not understand, terms we might even not approve of, so we take offense. What do you mean we can't be priests because we don't have paperwork? 
What do you mean I have to answer to you, God? But remember, this too is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Remember that beautiful verse I just put up here from Luke chapter 12, right? Oh, God knows the the number of the hairs on your head are numbered. You're worth more than many sparrows. And that's beautiful, and I appeal to that, and I love that. But you know how Jesus introduces that? You back up in the text a little bit, and Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. What happened to the sparrows? It almost seems contradictory. See if this works. Right here, down here. Oh, that's not going to work, is it? Oh yeah, it is. Don't be afraid, he says. Great. Wait, no. Fear him. Okay, which is it? Fear him or don't fear him? Be afraid or don't be afraid? How do these two things go together? The answer is yes. We do have down here this beautiful text that God knows us and loves us and receives us with extravagant welcome. Right down here, God is love. But we also have this fear Him up here because God is holy. And human nature does its absolute best to eliminate nuance and tension wherever we can find it. We polarize. Don't know if anyone's following the news. We polarize. That's the human broken condition. We don't like answers that are both that require thoughtful nuance. We want either this or that, but not both. But God doesn't play by our rules. And He doesn't have to. We have a tendency, maybe we'll knock off the whole top half here. What if we just choose the God of love and let's ignore all the references to God's holiness and judgment? Well, if we do that, then we end up with a God who loves us just the way we are. You don't have to change. Just be you. And God will accept you just the way you are. And if that is your repeating refrain, you are worshiping half a God. And you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Or flip it. And let's wipe out the God is love stuff. And let's just focus on a God who is holy. And now we're into judgment mode. And we're out evaluating other people and evaluating ourselves. Saying, are you living up to God's righteous standards? And you have to live a perfect righteous life to please God, so live in guilt and shame. And if that is your repeating refrain, you too are worshiping half a God. And not necessarily a pleasant half. And it's not the God of the Bible. We're really bad at holding these two concepts in balance together, but this is precisely what we have to do. Because either one on its own is incomplete, but together behold your God. And it is most perfectly demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus. Right? A holy God, the judge of the universe, says sin must be dealt with. And a loving God says, and I'll deal with it by taking the penalty for it upon myself. As Christ goes to the cross, God's holiness was satisfied. And God's love was on full display. 
And because of the cross, this holy God of perfect righteousness and glory welcomes us to know Him. He welcomes us by name, even. And He invites us on His terms. He welcomes us by name. God is love. This is truth. He also invites us on His terms because God is holy. And this is truth too. And if you want renewal, even better than that, if you want the God who renews, then you need to understand that He is right here, waiting, ready to welcome you by name. And He has some terms. If you're going to be in relationship with Him, you put Him first. We put Him first. And I think the most amazing part of this, in the end of it, is to know that this God who is so high and so exalted, so set apart in the perfection of His character and His righteousness and His glory, and He looks down on you and me and says, I want to love them. You know, if His standards were really low, He's like, yeah, come on in, you're fine. That kind of love isn't that attractive. But when His standards are high, and that's the God who says, I want to love you. You know, it, it's like coaches that really don't care about the game, right? They don't take practice seriously. They don't get you worked up. You miss a practice, miss a game, no big deal. You foul out of a game, whatever. And the coach says, hey, you know, we didn't win that one, but good job, everybody. That's not really the praise you're looking for. It doesn't motivate you as a player. When you lose, the coach is like, hey, yeah, I'm proud of you. We'll get him next time. Compare that to the coach who has extraordinarily high standards. Both on the court and off the court. They require the drills and the training. They run you into the ground in practice. They demand excellence on the court and excellence in life. And their praise doesn't come rushing out at every opportunity. They're not gushing in their affection. But when you lose and they call you over and you're expecting the you know, six things you did wrong and that coach says, man, you guys did great today. You didn't win the game, but you played with character and poise and I'm proud of you. When the coach with high standards says I love you and I'm proud of you, that means the world. What I'm saying here is I guess if you're ready to put God first, prepare to be changed. If you're seeking the God of renewal, renewal doesn't come by staying the same. By definition, you would not be being renewed if you just stayed where you were. But as God reclaims that primacy of position in your life, He's not going to simply affirm who you are. I'm sorry, He won't. He's not just going to leave you the way you are. And that should be good news. He's going to be at work to change you and to transform you and to heal you and to make you whole in ways you might not expect, in ways at first you might not even be excited about until you see that God has a long game and that as He transforms us and changes us, it is for His glory and our good. 
Prepare to be changed. Wait, weren't we in Ezra 2? Wasn't this just a big list of names? Aren't you stretching this a little far, Tim? Probably. It's a lot of ground to cover just from a census. I get that. But the themes that this census alludes to, and it taps into some of the biggest themes in all of Scripture. And in that respect, I am doing no injustice to this text. As we are seeking, even pursuing renewal, and not renewal saying, I I just want to feel better, and not just mood enhancement, but renewal of our relationship with our God. We should be excited heading into a book like Ezra together. Because God does welcome us by name. And that means no matter our past, no matter our present, no matter our view of what we think our future holds, no matter our sin, no matter our status, whether we're insiders, outsiders, foreigners, immigrants, refugees, whether we're rich or poor, what color our skin is, God says, I welcome you all and I know you by name. You are precious to me. And your only hope in this life, God says, is to know me. We should be excited about the idea of renewed relationship with our God because He welcomes us by name. And we should be terrified by the idea of renewal with our God because renewal will undeniably take us into the most terrifying place we can possibly be. The place of change. The place of changing our lives as the Spirit works within us and cultivates our desires and aligns our heart with God's heart. And we're going to see change in our lives happening. And it might be hard and it might be painful. And we might be confronted with things about ourselves that we don't want to face or things we've been working really, really hard not to face. We might even be confronted with those areas of our lives that we are unwilling to change. But when confronted with God's holiness and God's love, and when you get not half a God, but when you find all of God, you will find that those seeds of renewal begin to bloom. We are seeking renewal together. We are seeking the God who renews together so maybe all i'm saying this morning is this be warned as we pursue god we might find him and what havoc might he wreak in our lives then will you pray with me Lord Jesus, I want to begin by just thanking you for being the perfect demonstration of what a whole God looks like. Thank you for, in your holiness, realizing that sin needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with decisively. And thank you in your love for taking the cost of that sin upon yourself, the penalty upon yourself, that our sins are not held against us. that you have opened a way back into right relationship with the God who created us and who loves us and calls us precious child. So Lord Jesus, we worship you.
And we also ask that you would create an openness in us. And that's everything from being a people who see your welcome and are so willing to offer that same welcome to others. That we'd be a, a, a people known for being a place of radical welcome simply because we love you and want to look more like you. But we also want to put ourselves in that terrifying place of change. And even as we continue through the story of Ezra, and the people haven't even got back to Jerusalem yet, but as this story continues to unfold, would you please give us an openness in the deep places of our spirit where we might be willing to change? willing to be changed, willing to allow the Holy Spirit free reign in us. We might need to spend some time reflecting even this week on what it means to put you first in all areas of our life. But God, human effort is not going to do it here. Us conjuring enough willpower to change is not what we're advocating for. What we're asking for is an openness that we might allow your Holy Spirit to come in and to be the agent of life transformation. We need you. That's what this renewal thing is about. We need you. And if you don't go before us, there's no point going. So go first. Go foremost. Be our first. Be our foremost in all things. That we might find true renewal having our lives bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.